Hey folks, it's Doug Thornell, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. Adrian, how you doing? Hi, I'm going a little stir-crazy, but I'm healthy at this moment, so I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. Um, This is The Electables, and uh, we are approaching, I believe, Michael, you probably, our producer Michael, probably knows the hard number, but I think we're approaching our 100th episode, right? Is this 98, 99? I believe it's around there. So anyway, not quite at the century mark. Yeah, not quite there, but um, when we get there in the next episode or two, we'll have a big celebration, a virtual celebration with social distancing, but... um, Adrian, uh, so the last time we talked, I believe we had Guy Cecil on. Um, some things have happened in the campaign. Now, you know, it's hard to sort of every day seems to be another bizarre twist and turn. But uh, any, what's your initial? What, where are you right now in terms of thinking about the presidential? I know there's been a lot of discussion about VP, um, but um, Trump's numbers are continue continue to slide. Where are we right now? Well, look, the Biden campaign, first of all, is in a very um, fortuitous situation for them because on the one hand, um, as you mentioned, Trump's numbers have really plummeted since he, since the coronavirus started, since the economy is tanked, since he's mishandled this crisis, since he's, um, you know, made families feel like they don't have the faith and confidence in their commander in chief. Um, to pull them through this, you know, extremely, um, you know, this extreme health crisis that nobody probably would have anticipated would have happened at this point. Uh, so his numbers have plummeted in that sense. And, you know, normally, Doug, as you know very well, because you've worked on a number of campaigns too, campaigns spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to try to drive down their opponent's numbers. And the fact that the Biden campaign has been able to sort of take this time to recalibrate, to scale for the general, to raise a lot of money. They had a very strong fundraising um, a month in April. They just announced, I think it was over $60 million, which is incredible if you combine, combine that with the DNC. Yeah, That's really great. incredible. Um, they were just short of the, the Trump campaign and the RNC, but the point is the Biden campaign is certainly raising the necessary funds and will continue to do so to remain uh, competitive with Trump and his fundraising um, going into the fall of this year. So the point is, this has been a good time for Biden's campaign to sit back, um, raise some money, scale appropriately um, for the final stretch of the campaign. And, uh, you know, Trump has just been a disaster. And, you know, it matters less. I get Sometimes I get frustrated when I see the national uh, media focus so much on, you know, Trump's approval rating within the Republican Party, for example. Yes. Trump has a very solid standing among voters who are registered Republicans. But we already knew that, and that has not declined at all. That has really not wavered since he became president. So, yes, he has solidified his base, but he has done nothing to pull in independents, and he's done nothing to pull in moderate swing voters, and he needs those two sectors in order to win re-election. And Biden so far is doing very well in those um, among those groups of voters. And um, all signs point to him only continuing to expand his lead. 
Yeah, I remember when Barack Obama dropped to like 44 or 45% and it was as if the world was going to fall apart and he was going to lose and everyone was talking about how he was going to be a one-term president, what's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And we have this, <laughs> and we've got this president who has been living in the low 40s, mid 40s for his entire you know, his entire presidency. And I think, you know, maybe the media is just shocked that the Republicans have stuck with him. And I'm, you know, to some degree shocked some of them have as well. But I'm not, but it's been consistent support from from the start of his administration. I don't think we should expect Republicans to leave Trump. That's not, you know, Democrats don't need to win a whole bunch of Republicans to win this campaign. What they need to do is turn out their base. They need to persuade those um, uh, swing voters. uh, And then, you know, maybe win a a couple Republicans here and there. But, you know, as you know, and as our guest knows, who we will bring on in a minute, it was such a razor thin election in 2016. There's no margin of error for Trump. No, that's exactly Um, right. It was Trump won by 80,000 votes. There's no margin of error. He's got to do well this time. I mean, he's got to, like, increase his, his lead from last time. And that is looking very, you know, I mean, anything can happen. And certainly we Democrats are taking nothing for granted. And we're working very hard as if this is going to be a tough election. And it is going to be a tough election. But Trump has not done anything to expand his lead, not only in the last few months, but in the entire time that he's been in the White House. That's exactly right. Um, to shed a little more uh, insight on um, in a really important uh, department within campaigns, that's the digital fundraising and digital media aspects of campaigns. Uh, we're really lucky to have uh, Jason Rosenbaum. Uh, Jason is the uh, is a managing director and president of SKDK Digital, uh, and as everyone knows, or full disclosure, I work at SKDK, so I work with Jason. Um, and Jason is one of the top digital strategists out there, digital fundraisers. He, uh, prior to coming to SKDK, he uh, led a company called Seward Squared Strategies. Uh, he has uh, he he led the digital advertising campaign uh, led digital advertising for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, he's worked at Google uh, and he's led digital operations for the DSCC, the DCCC, uh, the American Association of Justice, and a number of other uh, organizations. So, uh, Jason, really uh, uh, great to have you on the Electables. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Doug and Adrian. Thank you. So I'll kick us off. Um, Jason, how did you, first of all, why don't you tell our, if you could tell our audience, what exactly does a digital fundraiser, you're not just a digital fundraiser, you're both, you both do digital fundraising and digital media. Um, Tell our, tell our audience, what exactly does that mean? Sure, sure. And that's a great question. I think a good way to kick us off. We work, digital is a, is a, try not to look at digital as a single entity. Digital is something that impacts campaigns and organizations through in, in, in a number of different ways. And the way we often approach it is we, we look at every organization and really whether this is a political campaign, a political organization, or even a company um, has three primary functions. It's got a revenue function. It brings money in and money goes out. It's 
got a message function. We save you know, kind of variations on a common theme to a, a number of different audiences. Every organization does that. And then there's a mobilization component. And with politics, that's turning out identified supporters to vote or to support a particular issue. With a company that's reactivating existing customers or past customers and, and finding ways. And so what we do, what I do and have done in my career is, is apply digital technology and kind of new technology to these primary functions. And over the years, we've developed different different tactics that change over the years, but um, you know, we try to find the most effective ways to apply technology to either raise more money on the revenue side, um, produce stronger paid media campaigns. So when we're, we're talking to those little voters you were talking about at the top of the show, that we're saying the right thing and we're getting those messages to them effectively. And when we get closer to election day, either election day or early vote, as we have in a lot of states and we'll probably have a lot more of this year, um, finding voters to the voters who are going to support us and make sure they, they turn out and we drive as, as high a turnout as possible with our, among our supporters. So Jason, tell me, like, tell us a little bit about, and our, our listeners, a little bit about how, I mean, I know you're um, not working directly on the Biden campaign or on the presidential campaign, but how would you advise a campaign right now, this cycle, on how to run a virtual campaign? I mean, digital has been a growing and increasingly important um, element to a successful campaign. But now, given the fact that it may be only the, almost the only element <laughs> to a campaign, um, mm -hmm. tell us how you would advise a modern-day um, campaign with a lot of at stake. How would you advise them to run their digital strategy? Sure. And I, I know a lot of the folks running that those programs right now. A lot of them are former colleagues and 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 right. some of the most outstanding talented people in this field right now are working on this. So folks who are listening should feel heartened by the level of talent that's working both on the campaign and IE side, um, you know, to beat President Trump. But you know, to your point, yeah, I mean, it, this is a, a medium that was already important that now has a heightened level of importance. On the fundraising side, as you pointed out, fundraising, we've had, we had a great quarter. Um, a lot of this is going to, major donor events are going to be more difficult. And this is true for Biden, and it's true down the ticket, where we can't have in-person events, and so it's going to make major donor fundraising more difficult than it has been for the past two months. But this is an area where digital fundraising can really help make up ground. And I, I think we'll see that more and more as we get deeper into the campaign cycle with with uh, with the Biden campaign. But we're seeing it with races up and down the ticket. So our statewide candidates saw you know, blew past every projection we we had for them over the past month or two um, because I think our base is energized and because this is the outlet. I think people a lot of people have more time on their hands. Um, the parent of two young kids, I seem to have less time on my hands. Um, but I think a lot of folks at home are looking for ways to, you know, to, to, to ensure that we win in November, and that's one way they're doing it. So digital fundraising is, you know, for the time of my career has grown from a, from a, what at one time was kind of a, a small stream of revenue for most organizations. And that time has grown into one of the major legs of, of revenue from, for most political campaigns and organizations to, to where we are right now, 
where it is absolutely critical to maximize every penny that you can bring in, right? And, and on the message side, Doug pointed out also the top of the, of the show here, there's a very slim, persuadable audience, a very slim swath of the electorate. That's, that, that assume, as, as long as we turn our base out, that slim, slim piece of the electorate is going to decide who wins this election and it's in a handful of states. And so digital media provides an opportunity for us to reach those people far more efficiently. And so running very heavy programs to that, that small sliver of folks, that 8 to 10% of the electorate that remains, you know, un, that will likely remain undecided as we get into September and October, um, makes digital so, so important. Right. Jason, uh, I, I wanted to get your take on where the parties are compared to one another you know what if it, 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 the the whole digital revolution most people connect with uh liberals and democrats and obviously howard dean used began using it in ways that uh no one had used at that time and uh both to raise money and to mobilize folks meetups things like that um and then barack obama took it to another level but You've heard a lot recently that Republicans have caught up uh, and that the Trump campaign under Brad Parscale has, you know, um, moved beyond, sort of eclipsed us. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but they've obviously spent a whole whole uh, lot on Facebook and other places. But I, I'd love your take. Uh, I know you're, you're obviously constantly monitoring the opposition. Where where do the parties stand? Who has the advantage? Who's doing the right thing, the smart things right now? I think it depends on what area of digital you're looking at, and and this goes to my my first point that digital is a lot of different things, and I think we hear a lot of talk about what really amounts to President Trump's effectiveness on what we call organic social, and when I say organic social, that is the public facing social media properties of a campaign. So the public facing Facebook page, the Twitter page, um, the Twitter feed. Um, this is not paid communications or paid advertising, which is separate. President Trump has a built, Donald Trump has a built in advantage when we talk about organic social media. The technology platforms heavily favor content that is outrageous heavily favor content that gets clicks and likes and shares. And where we are with our political debate in this country, the more loud and the more outrageous and the more ridiculous you can be, we have very powerful platforms that, that, that will reward that kind of activity and make sure it spreads as far and as fast and as wide as possible. And this really started in 2015 and 2016 and extends today and so you hear a lot it's it's less you know it's, it's less tactical it's less the tactics that they're engaged in and it's more the, the the design of of where we are with modern media that provides this advantage now that said there's no shortage of the amount of money that the trump campaign is spending on digital media and digital technology that's a function of how much money they're actually just raising and i i you know that that as long as the Democratic side continues to raise money, I don't, you know, I don't envision there being a massive difference. There really wasn't in 2016 either. 
Um, it's really a, a built-in functional advantage. The platforms provide a president who is completely irresponsible um, with his with his language and message that gives him that advantage. So on that note, Jason, I want, I want to ask you, you know, it, it has been, um, you know, clearly it's recognized that Donald Trump uses social media to his advantage, but he also does so in a way that is very distasteful to a lot of voters um, by saying outlandish things on Twitter, by using his official White House Twitter account, for example, to um, make sexist derogatory comments, um, to degrade people. I mean, he basically, you know, sounds like a you know, a bitter high school kid who, um, you know, is, is trying to bully his classmates on Twitter every day. But at the same time, because of that, he is able to get more attention. He's able to get more shares. He's able to, you know, take advantage of social media platforms um, to the point that you just made by being overly sensational and using that to drive news. How can Democrats compete with that if we're not willing to go that low, if we're not willing to be um to, to think to that level you know i know david pluff and david axelrod um recently wrote a really um compelling op-ed in the new york times about ways the biden campaign can seize on this moment and one of the things that they mentioned is you know sort of get creative on social media get creative digitally and you know they, they alluded that like you kind of you don't have to be as as um derogatory as Trump, but maybe send some snarky tweets back or, or do some things that, um, you know, ca cause more people to, you know, engage with you. But at the same time, that's also not Joe Biden, right? Like people love Joe Biden because right. he rises above, because he's empathetic, because um, he's a trusted public servant. How do you sort of square all of this if you're a Democrat trying to compete with the Trump campaign or any campaign on the Republican side that is modeling their digital strategy after the Trump campaign. Yeah, and let me clarify, when I said earlier, this is not something tactical that the Trump campaign is doing. What there is it's not tactical and that it's not a, there's not a strategic technology application here. It's very tactical and what they're, they know what they're doing. Right? He, he absolutely knows media. He knows this works. This is a deliberate tactic. You know, this is part of his whole, his whole overall strategy. Um, and, Look, I think you have to step back and look at how 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 effective is this really, and is this a path that we need that we need to follow? Um, look, you pointed out at the top of the show too, Adrian. Thirty his support among hardcore Republicans remains high. It has been since 2015. It remains so today. He's got a lock on roughly 30 to 35 percent of the voting population. We're not going to crack into that. A vast proportion of the the, the, uh, the people that are following and liking and sharing that comment are those 30 to 35 percent of people that we're not going to get anyway. And to your point, right. no, that that isn't Joe Biden. And so, it, mm -mm. you know, we should be careful of falling into another candidate's playbook. That's their playbook. And that doesn't mean, you know, we're soft or, you know, we're not fighting hard enough. We should focus our resources on where it's going to make a difference. Mobilizing our base is really important. I think, I personally think that's, you know, that's a major part of our campaign strategy, but I believe that's going to happen and focusing our resources on the eight to 10% of voters who have yet to make up their mind and probably won't make up their mind until right up until the time they're going to make that vote, whether that's early voter on election day, and making sure we focus resources 
on that 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 piece of the electorate is to me the, by far the more important than who has more likes and shares. And I know you won't, you know, those aren't the stories we read in the New York Times and the Washington Post. It's, you know, it's a race to see who can be the loudest on social media. But let's look at what's really effective here and who we need to win this election. Um, and I, I believe that's where the resources are most useful. Uh, Jason, you, you've been, uh, you know, you're not uh, affiliated with the Biden campaign directly, although you and I work at a firm that does work with uh, Joe Biden's campaign. Um, but just someone who's, you know, obviously a political animal and works in the business. Uh, what's your take been on how they've been doing digitally? You know, I, I would say through the primary. I, I One thing I just want to point out that maybe some people don't know about, but you know, they've been producing, uh, my understanding is they produce pretty much all of their video content in-house, which is, um, so they use their, you know, that's not, that's their television content as well as the digital properties that they have. Um, but that to me is, uh, you know, and they, I have, I have actually felt that they, they ran some of the best advertising in the primary, um, some smart, really good, ads that reinforced why people like Joe Biden. Um, but I just wanted to get your take on um, how you felt, you know, his campaign did um, using um, digital digital tools to reach voters. Sure. And I, I think outstanding, especially the, the circumstances in which they're under, there are periods where the campaign was extremely cash-strapped. That's challenging. I remember going through that during periods of, of uh, working for Secretary Clinton's campaign early on. Um, it's extremely challenging when you're budget limited and that this work is labor intensive. It requires videographers, video editors, production people. Um, and then on the media side, buying and placing media, it's, it's a labor intensive, time intense, it's labor intensive, time intensive work. I think they did an outstanding job and, you know, I. I'm on the consulting side now, so this is a little counter to what I do for a living. I mean, there's a huge advantage to building these operations. When you have a, a, a large-scale operation like this, um, building the talent in-house um, and putting that, you know, putting that machinery together, um, there's some significant advantage to, to that. Um, and, and we did that in 2016. The, the digital advertising team alone was about 35 people. All of digital together was close to 200 I think by the by the time we got late into the campaign, there's some real advantages there with quality control, the um, your ability to produce products in house. There's just a there's like I would say less lag time between going back and forth with external partners. Um, we relied on a lot of partners, um, external partners, but we, we had a substantial piece of that in house, um, and I I think that's a worthwhile model, and I think that the folks that are executing it quite well. What's what's your sense of I, where are we with uh, text messaging? Is that a big yeah. thing right now? I mean, I, I I remember it was a big thing in 2008 when we were I think probably all of us were at the convention, but out in you know we were in the stadium and they said Texas number and say this and you know it was a tool mm -hmm. for Obama to collect numbers, but they also I believe he also announced. Joe Biden as his running mate over text. 
text message. Um, sure. Yeah. So I just, but you don't hear a lot about it right now. And so mm -hmm. uh, I'm just like, where are we with that? Yeah, it's interesting. Around 2008 and 2009, it was, it was text messaging was a bit ahead of its time. We, we did, and, and I ran a program at the DSCC where we, we tried to build a mobile messaging program. And I think it's true today as it was then. It's very beneficial for larger organizations. But in the last few years, that started to change. And we've started to use SMS on the revenue side where it's become a, it's become a, um, a cost efficient tool to raise money. There were some financial obstacles in making and trying to make a program revenue positive. Um, six, seven, eight years ago, some of those barriers have come down. Barriers for entry have come down. And so we can, we now, we supplement almost all of our programs with some form of SMS fundraising. So on the revenue side, text has come a long way. Um, on the turnout, on the message and turnout side, there's a lot that we can do reaching voters one-to-one -one with mobile messaging. And I, you know, you may not hear people talk about it, but it's, it's it very much is growing as a persuasion and turnout tool um, because there's some technologies that allow us to reach voters, um, voters, folks that we, we know and have identified as likely voters um, and can reach those with messages and with, with text communications. And so I, you'll see more of that every cycle, um, but it's grown into a main piece of um, most persuasion programs. So whereas it, we used it 10 years ago for kind of a big announcement and it was used as kind of an acquisition tool, we're now using it to actually raise money. We're using it to persuade large blocks of voters, like we're, you know, hundreds of thousands of voters at a time. Um, and it's like with anything, the cost is cost, some of the barriers for entry with cost have come down and the technology's gotten better. It's allowed us to reach a larger number of people um, who we can identify in a voter file to send a message to. So Jason, one of the biggest challenges that I think all candidates have every cycle, this is not just akin to Democrats, Democrats and Republicans across the board, um, up and down the ballot, is how to reach younger voters and how to ensure that they will turn out to vote. What have you noticed in terms of the trends? Like, what are the platforms that, I don't know, voters between the ages of 18 and 25 are looking at? Like, what's the best way or combination of ways to use digital tactics to reach these voters these days? Are they on Snapchat? Are they on Instagram? I know that they all think Facebook sure. is, like, super ancient, which, you know, <laughs> I kind of get. But, right. you know, how, how, do you, how do you run a strategy to, to try to reach these voters? It's challenging. The one thing that we do know is you cannot reach people, you cannot reach, let alone 18 to 24 year olds, but voters under 40 are extremely difficult to reach through broadcast TV, broadcasting cable TV. And so we have to find these other outlets. And, excuse me, and, and we, you know, I've been involved in a number of studies that have just shown this over and over again. Folks under 40 are very, very difficult to reach. Um, through the way that we reach voters, say over 60. Um, look, the, there's no one magic platform. In fact, I think most, most younger people actually are on fewer platforms. I have a staff person that joked with me one time. He said, I'm, he's like, I'm Gen Z. I'm on, I go to like two websites because <laughs> they just don't use the internet <laughs> in the way that we did when we came up. Like, I go to two websites. 
So look, it's a combination. You have to diversify your media strategy. It's got to be across and not, it's, you've got to think outside just mobile. You've got to think just outside the smart, you've got to think outside the smartphone, outside the laptop. You think about out of home. Um, we ran in 2016, ran ads in college bookstores, the TV screens on college bookstores on every major campus in a, in a battleground state. Right. You have to think about media as a single thread that runs through people's lives. And our objective is to reach, reach people as many times throughout their day as we can. And it's kind of how we've thought about media, you know, a decade, even a decade ago, where it was one time a single screen. And then we got to this multiple screen. Now we try to think about it as people consume media throughout their day because it's really an endless thing. Right. People get up in the morning and they start to consume media. How do we reach them and throughout their day? So there's no single platform. Of course, Snapchat and these new platforms crop up every few years. Um, but, you know, we identify where the we have to identify where the eyes are and put your ads in a lot of different places. Jason, uh, we're uh, approaching. Um the end of the interview, I, I, I want to ask you one last question and let Elrod follow up. Um, but real quick, where, where are we going to be in, say, five years in terms of the industry? You talked about how we're moving now to, you know, sort of an integrated approach to, to media, whereas, you know, say for the last 10 years, there was digital media firms and television firms. And, you know, you're, I think we're starting to see that line blur more because people are being screen agnostic and it's all about you know going to where the audience is and if that's on a handheld device or if that's on your laptop or if that's on ott or if that's tv you know you should have content that is consistent and reinforces your overall message so i'm just curious where do you where do you think what are some th trends or new things that you think you know, that are going to change the way we can, we are doing things in just five, like in say five, 10 years. Right. Boy, it's hard to say in five to 10 years. I mean, the landscape, you know, I, we, we've only 10 well, years I, in the I, smartphones period, but well, no, it's a fast, yeah. it's a great question, but you would, I mean, um, look, our, the time that we spend in front of screens is probably not going to go down over the next five years. Um, Right. I, I think we'll see continue to see more consolidation in advertising. Um, for is, 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 is things have grown more fragmented in the media environment. That is, people consume media in a lot more places. Um, the, the outlets in which we run advertising has actually decreased. And that's you know, Google and Facebook have continued to purchase and own. They now own a much greater share of the of the advertising ecosystem, the places where we put advertising. I think that'll continue. Um, that doesn't make the job of advertising and the both the staff on campaigns and the consultants who do it any easier because the platforms have become, it, in that time, while they've consolidated, have grown far more sophisticated. Um, so I think our ability to reach and target people um, in you know more interesting and granular ways will will probably continue as well. And it's going to be the ability to use and harness that data. You know, we talk a lot about, folks in this industry talk a lot about creative, and, and creative is important. It's, when we think about paid media, there's three things. There's targeting, there's the con, there's targeting, who we're going to reach, 
there's the, the media plan, the media planning itself, where we're putting the ads, and then there's the creative, right? And we spend a lot of time on creative, and that's a conversation that most folks like to have. We probably don't talk enough about the other two, and that is how we do our targeting, how we identify the people we're going to spend money reaching. And then the, the probably least talked about, but I think probably the most important is the planning piece and where we're putting the advertising. And so I think over the next few years, that will grow more because our, the level of sophistication will increase. I think about what this looked like 10 years ago and what it looks like now and, and how much it's grown and, and the things that we're able to do now are just so much. It's almost like it didn't even exist 10 years ago, even though I did, I did this for a living then. Um, I, I, that, that'll continue to grow. And, and so our, our ability to make content more granular for individuals will probably continue to increase. And um, so I, I see that as probably the, the most likely progression from where we are today. Who knows? If you asked me in 2004, uh, I, I started this in like 2004 or five. If you told me this is where I'd be today, I probably would have laughed. <laughs> yeah, we'd both, I'd be laughing too if you told me this is where I'd be right now. Um, well, listen, Jason, thank you so much for jumping on the electables. This has been fantastic, this conversation and, um, uh, continued success. Um, I know you're doing a number of, uh, Senate races and, um, and other projects, um, in 2020. Uh, but thank you for carving out the time to jump on the electables with, with me and Adrian. And thanks, mate. I'll talk to you. We talk a lot, Doug. It was great to reconnect and, and, and let's you know let's win <laughs> a lot of work to do yeah. let's win okay well for my uh, partner in crime adrian elrod this is doug thornell this has been the electables and we will catch you next time <laughs>